while I was at First Baptist Church of Wiley was I was over the annual Christmas parade. And this one event would um, bring together a couple of thousand people from the community. We would have about 50 or 60 different floats that would be entered. These floats would range from Oh, sports teams, dance teams, state representatives, school clubs. There would be bands occasionally, football teams occasionally, school board members, local churches. Each float would take its turn parading down Ballard Street. Some of these floats were spectacular. Man, they had thousands of lights on them. Um, the, the, they would have smoke billowing out of them. They would be animated in some way or another. It was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed being a part of this. We certainly could not compete with Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. Okay, not even close, but we held our own for a small community putting on a Christmas parade. This morning, what we're going to see is a parade that is going to take place. Now, this parade is not going to be like the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, or nor will it be like the Wiley Christmas Parade. This parade is going to be unique. There's going to just be one entry, and that entry is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry some 2,000 years ago. Sunday was the first day in what would be the last week of Jesus' public ministry. Over a period of eight days, Jesus will enter into Jerusalem. He will cleanse the temple. He will challenge the religious leaders, institute the Lord's Supper. He will be arrested tried, denied by his closest companions, and he would be crucified on Friday. The good thing is, he was crucified on on Friday, but Sunday is coming. He would burst forth from the tomb, having conquered life, death, the grave, and Satan himself. On Friday of this week, we will come together to remember the events leading up to the cross. And then Sunday we'll come back together and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm already looking forward to our time of celebration and looking forward to seeing what God is going to do in our midst. If the past couple of years are any indication, Easter Sunday will be the largest attended Sunday of the year for us. So we want to make sure that as a church and as a faith family that we're prayed up, that we're prepared up, and that we're proclaimed up. So this week, let me challenge you. Pray. Pray for me as I prepare for Sunday. Pray for Bill and his worship team as they prepare to lead us in worship on Sunday. Pray that the Lord will bring many visitors onto this campus Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And pray that the Lord will draw the lost unto himself for salvation. And I pray that you will pray spiritually that God will prepare your heart for what it is that he's wanting you to to experience this coming week and also invite 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 people to come and be with you next Sunday here and for our weekend 
events. This morning, we're looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 22 through 24. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19, 22 through 24. If you did not bring a Bible, there's one located in the pew rack in front of you. You can also, if you have a smart um, device, you can also um, turn with us to Luke chapter 19, 22 through 24. But before I read from this passage of scripture, let me give you a little background this morning morning of what we're looking at. The significance of the final week of the life of Christ is not to be missed. Since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, humanity had been anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the Savior, the arrival of King Jesus. The setting for the triumphal entry occurs during the Passover celebration. The Passover was one of three different celebrations that all men were required to attend in the city of Jerusalem each year. Generally, not only would the men attend, but also their families would come together for these different celebrations. The Passover celebration lasted for a week, and it was a time to help the Israelites not forget that first Passover celebration that occurred whenever the lamb was slain and the blood of that lamb was was placed on the doorframe of the house, which indicated that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to pass over the home of the one who placed that blood on that doorframe and he would save all of the inhabitants within that house. So the Passover is a time of celebrating the Lord's deliverance from Pharaoh's captivity. It's estimated that as many as a million people, I've even seen as many as two million people would cram into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover during the days of Jesus. When you think about the events that of this day and this week, you know that it was not by accident that the chose that the Lord chose to make his grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. So let's look together at Luke chapter 19 and see the events that lead up to Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. So Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, I said 22, but 28, says this, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near the, um, to Beth, Bethage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need for it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, 
saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave a stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I want you to see the picture this morning. We have just read how when Jesus is going down the Mount of Olives. And as he is preparing to come into the city of Jerusalem, the people are crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Here's what I want us to see this morning. And even as we go throughout this week, and as you spend time in your personal studies and devotion, as we come together on Friday and Saturday, I want us to see this. Many of the same people that shouted, blessed is the king, would soon shout out, crucify him. They will cry, crucify him, because he did not meet their expectations. Think about that. Jesus did not meet the expectations of the people. Notice point number one this morning. Observe the king. You know, I don't know about you, but when I think about a parade, I think about the need to go big. How about you? Bigger is always better, in my opinion. When I was younger, I often wondered why in the world did Jesus ride into town on the back of a donkey? Man, why didn't he pick a Clydesdale? Man, now that's a horse, isn't it? That is an animal that is incredibly beautiful and incredibly graceful when it marches down a street. Even though a Clydesdale or a stallion would have made for a much grander entrance, in our opinion, I do not want us to miss the significance of this cult which actually is a young donkey, what may appear to be a very insignificant event is actually the fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy. In Zechariah 9.9 we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years before the first day of the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the prophet Zechariah made the declaration that the Savior of the world would arrive in the city of Jerusalem riding the back of a donkey. It was an unbroken donkey. Now, 500 years later, Jesus tells two of his disciples to go into the local village and to commandeer and bring back to him a donkey. Part of the miracle of this day is the fact that this donkey was an unbroken donkey. People do not just get on the back of a donkey and ride it into town. Donkeys are mean. They're stubborn. They'll buck you. They'll kick you. They'll bite you. And man, they're, they're, they make a hideous noise, don't they? Donkeys aren't like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, are they? I mean, donkeys are ugly and, and they are the least animal you would think would be fit for a king. 
when I mention that they're mean, stubborn, they'll buck you, kick you, bite you, and that they're loud, that is a broken donkey. Man, an unbroken donkey is that and then some. So Jesus has these two disciples go into a village to fetch a donkey that had never been ridden before. Think about that for a second. How in the world did Jesus know that there would be an unbroken donkey tied up in a village um, just ahead? Not only is there the question of how did he know that, but how did he know that the owners of the house would allow these two disciples to bring that donkey to Jesus? You and I know exactly how he knew because he is the king. He is King Jesus. He is God. There is nothing outside of his control nor anything that he does not already know. He not only ordained that donkey to be tied up inside that village, but he ordained the response that the owners would give as well. When the disciples arrive and begin to untie the colt, the owners... They obviously want to know what's going on, what they're doing. And so they ask them, what are you doing? And these two disciples say, the Lord has need of it. They did not say that our master needs it or that our teacher needs it or that our rabbi needs it. They said the Lord needs it. Why in the world did Jesus have them say the name Lord instead of master, teacher, or rabbi? He gave this declaration because Jesus is officially making the declaration to all of the people of the known world, making the declaration that he is Lord, that he is God in the flesh, and that he is the long-awaited Savior that is coming to assume his position within the city of Jerusalem. Notice point number two. First we have the king, and now we see the crowd. Observe the crowd. A crowd has gathered. Jesus, our king, begins to traverse down this long, windy road on his way into Jerusalem. This is not a normal road, nor is it a normal mountain. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel before, um, but on my first trip over there, our tour guide said, um, what we call a mountain, you call a hill. What we call a river, you call a creek. What we call a sea, you call a lake. And that is so true. The Mount of Olives is a hill at best on its best day. It is not a mountain. It's not like the Rocky Mountains at all. It is a hill. But regardless of that, it's a very steep hill. And so as Jesus begins to travel down the road, Luke tells us, that the crowd begins to lay their cloaks on the ground. That would be like you and I rolling out the red carpet for a dignitary. So as Jesus begins to traverse down this road, they're laying out their cloaks, they're laying down palm trees, there are leaves, they're waving leaves, and they are worshiping the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The crowd knew the reality 
of the presence of the Lord was in their midst. They knew that the promised king was approaching his kingdom. And as we read just a second ago in Luke 19, it says, Blessed is the king, is what they shouted. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In Psalm chapter 118, we read this, this passage right here. Uh, it also says, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Within this crowd, there are some true, authentic worshipers. Many of these men and women, students and children that were lined up along that road had been with Jesus from the time that his earthly ministry first began. They had witnessed him turn water into wine. They had witnessed him heal the lame, provide sight to the blind, feed 5,000. They saw him walk on water, release the tongue of the mute. And in recent days, they saw Jesus call forth Lazarus out of the grave. They were worshipers. And so as they cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they meant exactly what it was that they were proclaiming. They knew they were in the presence of the king of the universe. All four Gospels tell us and document the triumphal entry. As we looked at a few minutes ago, as I read during our welcoming time, in John chapter 12, they also were crying out, Hosanna. And Hosanna means save means save now. So as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the crowd is crying out and they are making the declaration to Jesus that, that they need a savior and they want Jesus to save them. And they're also acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the king of kings, the king of the universe. Here's the deal though. At this time, as they are celebrating the arrival of the king, What they were looking for is they were looking for a king that was going to come into Jerusalem and deliver them from their oppressors, the Roman government. And when Jesus comes, Jesus comes declaring the message of peace, a message of reconciliation between God and man. So those true worshipers, They still did not grasp the weightiness of what was to come. They're looking for a warrior king like King David. Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey, indicating that he is coming in peace. So in biblical time, when a king would enter into a city during a time of peace, he would often ride in on the back of a donkey because a donkey represents peace. During a time of war, he would ride into town on a stallion or on a war horse. On this particular trip, Jesus comes to bring peace, bring reconciliation between God and man. But there is coming a day, though, when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to ride into town on a war horse. And we read about that in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, beginning of verse 11. This is what we read. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. 
And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this trip, he comes bringing peace. He comes to provide a means for man to be reconciled to God. Jesus rides into town not to assume an elevated seat in the throne room of his palace. Think about this. He comes into town to to assume his place on a wooden tree, on a cross very much like this. They, those Roman guards, will take his arms and outstretch them. And they will nail his hands into that cross. And then with his feet downstretched, those same Roman soldiers will nail his feet into that cross. Jesus will wear, wear a crown, but this crown will be made of thorns. And as they place it on his head, it will lit- literally rip his forehead to shreds. And he will take a place of elevation. But this won't be in a throne room in Jerusalem. It will be on the hill called Golgotha. And it will be there that those inhabitants of Jerusalem will crucify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus comes preparing to go to the cross and die on the cross and become the final blood sacrifice for all of humanity, past present and future as he enters into the city of Jerusalem. No other lamb will ever be permitted by God for a sacrifice ever again on behalf of the sins of mankind because Jesus will be the final sacrifice and it will be through his blood that all of humanity will find their salvation. So notice our third point this morning. Observe the praise. Observe the praise. Within every crowd, there are critics, aren't there? This particular crowd was not void of critics. This pious religious group of Pharisees, they've tried to get Jesus to rebuke the crowd because of the heresy that they believed was coming forth out of his mouth. Notice how they address Jesus here. They did not call him Messiah. They do not address him as Savior or King. They address Jesus as teacher. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. There was no doubt about Jesus being a good teacher. He had a way of teaching that even the best of the best of the Pharisees had admired. 
and envying. Since Jesus arrived on the scene, this group has been trying to do everything they could to stump Jesus, to get him to commit a sin or to get him to place himself into a compromising situation. Even here, they try to get Jesus to hush the crowd. And notice how Jesus responds. In verse 40, Jesus says this, I tell you, if these were silent, referring to the crowd who were crying out, blessed is the Lord. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why did Jesus say this? Why did he say even the stones would cry out? He said it because Jesus will be praised. On this day and every other day, the name of Jesus Christ will be praised. The entire universe and cosmos declare his glory. The mountains, the hills, the oceans, and the seas declare his glory. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, every land animal declares his glory. Everything around us screams out the glory of the Lord. If the people did not praise him on this specific day, then Jesus is saying that he would be praised because even the rocks will cry out and worship him. Church, I want you to know today that we are the ones that are set apart to worship the name of the Lord, to worship King Jesus. We are set apart to worship in this room as we come together corporately for worship. We are called to worship the Lord in our homes, at our places of employment, within our schools, at the grocery store, everywhere we go. We are set apart to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. On this particular day, nothing could detract from the announcement of Jesus' arrival into the city of Jerusalem. Nor could anything or anyone stand in his way as he marches toward the city of David. I added a point. Um, and so notice our fourth point this morning in your, in your bulletin. Hopefully you got a room for notes still. Observe the weeping. Observe the weeping. In verse 41 we read, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. You know, this isn't the first time that Jesus cries or that Jesus weeps. In John chapter eleven thirty five which happens to be the shortest verse in the Bible, John declares that Jesus wept. This is actually a different kind of weeping than he does over the city of Jerusalem. On this particular day, Jesus weeps because his friend Lazarus is in the grave. The word used for wept here in John is more of a subtle cry, or, or more of a silent crying. What Jesus did over the city of Jerusalem, though, was not a silent cry. It was more, it was more like a cry of agony. It would have been a cry that everyone in proximity of Jesus would have heard. Jesus was truly broken over the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. Jesus is coming to bring peace, but the people would turn their back on him and they would send him to a cross. And Jesus knew all of this was going to happen. 
He knew that his chosen people were going to deny him and send him to a cross and crucify him. And so Jesus looks out over this city, a city full of broken people, sin-rich people. And he looks out over this city and he weeps and he cries. The king of the world would be rejected by his creation. You know, it breaks my heart when I think about the Lord looking out over the city of Jerusalem and weeping on behalf of his creation. Some of you in this place this morning may be just like those people in the city of Jerusalem, may be rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus comes in peace today like he came in peace 2,000 years ago. He comes knocking on the door of your heart, asking you to invite him in. And scripture says that if you repent of your sins and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life, then you will experience life everlasting, eternal life. Do you know Jesus this morning? If you were to take your final breath on this side of eternity, do you know for a 100% fact where you will spend eternity? Don't miss this this morning. If you choose not to accept Jesus on this side of eternity, then one day you will stand before King Jesus, a condemned person. And a list of your sins will be read out to you of everything that you did on this side of eternity that condemns you to hell. And at the end of your rap sheet being read, Jesus will have no choice but to sentence you to eternity separated from him in a place called hell. Jesus comes Today, like he came to the city of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, he comes today in peace. Will you experience his peace today? Will you experience life everlasting? Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem because he knows what's going to happen to him, but he also knows what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. As we read in verses 43 and 44, we read, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I love what um, Brian Bill says about this. He says, Jesus had offered salvation to the people, but they rejected it. And as a result, they have lost out on real peace. In these verses, Jesus is looking at the future, and he sees some really bad things in store for the city of David. His chilling prophecy became reality in 70 AD when Titus and the Roman legion surrounded Jerusalem, built embankments around it so that no one could escape, and besieged the city for 143 days before turning it into a pile of rocks. Over 600 
50,000 adults and children were slaughtered over that period of time. The temple was totally destroyed and set ablaze. All of this took place just as Jesus said it would. Jesus also has made it abundantly clear that there is coming a day of judgment. There is coming a day when he will leave heaven full of all of his glory once again. And he will come and he will bring about utter destruction amongst those that have chosen to reject him. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 through 11, we read, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? What we read here is that if you turn from your sins today, you will live. You will live everlasting. If you don't turn from your sins, then scripture is clear that utter destruction will come your way. If you're here this morning, you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. And that is to cry out to Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Two people were represented that day On the road to Jerusalem, those that cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then there would also be those that were along that roadway and inside that city of Jerusalem that cried out, crucify him. Which group do you represent today? Are you going to praise Jesus for all of eternity or are you going to choose not to follow Jesus? Come unto Jesus today. Turn today from your sin and receive life everlasting. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to be standing here at the front. Then I invite you to come and place your faith in Jesus, to repent of your sins and to cry out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior so that you can know for certain today, if you were to die today, that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. So if you don't know Jesus, you come. If you're here this morning and you would like to join this church, God's leading you and your family to join this church. We invite you to come to be a part of this family. You may need to come and just kneel here at the front and begin now praying for God to reveal to you once again who you need to invite with you this coming weekend. Let's stand together and pray um, this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you now. Father, thanking you that you provided a way that we could experience eternal life. We thank you that you went to the cross on our behalf and died for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. That we could gain entrance into heaven. Jesus, I pray that 
every single one of us in this room that are believers will live our lives in gratitude of the sacrifice that you made for us. And Father, may we do everything that we can to lead those that we come in proximity to, to Jesus Christ as well. Father, if there's someone here that needs to come to you, unto you, and receive you for salvation, then this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that they'll do that. If there's someone here that needs to come and join this church, Lord, we invite them to come. Lord, move during this time of invitation. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you come right now and indicate that you need Jesus. I'd love to share with you how you could receive Christ this morning. If you're here this morning you want to join this church, you come as well. You come now during this time of invitation.